0: to The Fearless Flyer, I'm James and I'm joined today uh, again by Grant.
1: Yes, hello everyone, Uh, welcome to episode 24 of The Fearless Flyer and we're going to be talking about aircraft performance and limitations.
0: So previously in the last episode we talked about pilot training and as Grant just mentioned in this episode we're going to be discussing aircraft performance and limitations. So aircraft performance can be broken down into a few basic components. So there's takeoff and landing performance, en route performance, weight and balance, and then there is the subject of aircraft limitations. Also in this episode, we'll be covering a topic called stable approach requirements. Modern aircraft are designed and built to very high standards, and these standards are set out by the ICAO Annex 8 Airworthiness Directives. This is all placed by regulatory bodies such as the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA in America. The European Aviation Safety Agency, EASA in Europe, and all the other countries that have their own aviation regulatory bodies as well.
1: The aircraft manufacturers also don't want to see the aircraft parked somewhere they shouldn't be, particularly if it's in bits and pieces. So along with the regulators, they too have a desire to make sure that not only is the aircraft well designed, but it functions properly in all environments in which it's being
0: proposed to operate. So an aircraft manufacturer will publish a manual called an airplane flight manual, which is all the performance details of the aircraft, including takeoff and landing performance, weight and balance limitations, and other operational techniques that are required for an airline to safely operate the aircraft.
1: Now, as you can imagine, this gets interesting when we come to talking about takeoff and landing performance, as there are so many variables involved in this calculation. The basic ones are absolute limits, such as maximum takeoff and landing weight or mass. And then you must take into account other variables like the runway elevation, runway length, the slope, what the surface is like, as this affects both acceleration and deacceleration. Environmental factors play a huge part. So we look at how much wind, how much crosswind, tailwind, uh, what the pressure of the air and the air temperature is.
0: And all these factors must be taken into account whenever taking off or landing, whether it be a small two-seater training aircraft or an A380. Yeah, that's right.
1: So, for example, the Boeing 777 was tested thoroughly, as all aircraft are. The engineers, test engineers, got data whereby they did lots of takeoff and landings at different weights and in different environmental conditions. Out of all this testing came the aeroplane flight manual. And we use this data to calculate our takeoff performance. Now, no takeoff or landing conditions are ever the same. So from the manufacturer's testing comes the raw performance data. And then there's a lot of conservative factors that are added into the raw data, which are then used by airlines in performing their takeoff and landing calculations. These conservative factors provide additional safety margins. For example, taking off into a headwind is a definite bonus. And taking off with a tailwind uses a lot more runway, so not so good. So in our calculations, we use 50% of the reported headwind and 150% of the reported tailwind. So using the wind in this example, all our calculations are done in a conservative manner, which contributes to the safety of the flight. The calculations also take into account factors such as aircraft deterioration and performance over time and line pilot technique.
0: Why don't we uh, discuss the largest twin-engine commercial aircraft in service at the moment, which is the uh, Boeing 777, seeing as you're currently flying this aircraft and it only has two engines.
1: Yeah, okay. So the aeroplane flight manual and uh, aviation regulators have said that we must do our takeoff performance based on one of those engines failing at the most critical time on the takeoff roll. So if we have a long runway and we're taking off in our twin-engine aircraft, Such as the Boeing 777, we calculate a point on the runway whereby we can either stop on the remaining runway or get airborne on just one engine. And we call this decision speed V1. Before V1, if an engine fails, we stop and using full brakes, the aircraft will stop on the remaining runway. At or after V1, if an engine fails, there is enough power in the remaining engine to continue accelerating down the runway and climb away from the runway on this remaining engine, and also clear all obstacles in the climb-out path by a certain margin as well. Now, just say we're taking off on a much shorter runway. If in our calculations, we couldn't stop on the runway before V1, or go at V1 and get airborne on the remaining runway,
0: we have to reduce the weight of the aircraft in order to meet this legal criteria. I remember you saying that you don't often use full power for takeoff. How does this affect a V1?
1: Okay, so going a step further, we've talked about the long runway and what happens when the runway gets shorter. So like you say, most aircraft don't use full power for takeoff. When you're sitting at an intersection at the front of a queue at the traffic lights, when they go green, you don't floor it. The same philosophy we apply to an aircraft, we don't need to floor on takeoff. So we don't use full power in most of our takeoffs. The sole reason is that there's less engine wear. We call this derated or assumed takeoff. However, as the runway gets shorter for a given weight, we need more power in order to accelerate up to this V1 speed in order to meet the legal stop or go requirements. Obviously, for a given weight, once the runway gets too short and we're at full power, The only option thereafter to legally take off and meet all the stop-go criteria is to reduce the takeoff weight.
0: In addition to aircraft weight, runway length and engine thrust, what are some of the other considerations that affect the takeoff?
1: The flat configuration, the runway slope, the amount of headwind or tailwind, uh, the runway conditions such as whether it's wet or icy, also the density altitude such as Uh, reduced air pressure or increased air temperature, both which can reduce aircraft performance. So just to finish up on takeoff performance, there are additional limitations that could affect us that we must take into account. And these could be um, things such as tyre limit speeds, obstacle limitations in the takeoff path, brake energy limits for stopping, and a few other considerations as well. I'll talk more about how we manually
0: uh, handle the aircraft in this scenario in another podcast. We've gone over takeoff performance. So what about en route performance or cruise performance? What is
1: that? Yeah, there's an absolute altitude limit that the manufacturer says we can't exceed. And every aircraft is different, but most modern commercial jets, this is around 43,000 feet, However, this doesn't mean we can go straight to 43,000 feet, as there is an optimum altitude at which we fly based on the weight of the aircraft. Using the Boeing 777 again, for most long flights, the initial cruise altitude will be very low, and on a heavy 777 on an ultra-long-haul flight, this would be around twenty-nine to 30,000 feet. However, as we burn fuel off, our optimum altitude increases, and we'll perform step climbs every few hours. And near in the end of our flight, depending on how much payload we have, we might end up, say, at an optimum altitude around about 38, 39,000 feet. Uh, We'd still likely really struggle to get to the maximum altitude of 43,000 feet unless we're very light on, on
0: payload. So whilst you're in cruise, do you still have to take into account an engine failure whilst you're up there? Yeah, good point.
1: If we're really heavy and we lose an engine, we will increase thrust on the other engine to maximum continuous thrust And we'll perform a slow descent down to an altitude whereby we can maintain that altitude on one engine. And we call this engine out drift down. This altitude is displayed to us on a database on the aircraft's current weight. So if we are heavy, this would be quite low. And if we're light, this would be quite high. So some rough figures from a 777 300ER, if we're doing an ultra long haul flight, whereby we took off at the maximum weight of a little over 351 tunnel. 772,000 pounds. We're flying, say, 29,000 feet, and we had an engine failure. We'd drift down using the other engine to maintain an altitude of roughly seventeen to 19,000 feet. Now, on the same flight, nearing the end of this flight, and we've got a full passenger load and the engine failed, we would use the other engine to drift down to a single engine cruise altitude of around 25,000 to 27,000 feet. So you can see it's a lot higher. Now, these figures are based on outside air temperature, and I've given you a rough range, but you get the idea. The lighter you are, the um, higher you can fly on a single engine. So our flight planning must take into account the loss of an engine during the cruise. Being over high terrain, such as the northern Himalaya route, which we can fly, we must pre-calculate this weight in order to meet the legal requirements to maintain the minimum altitude on one engine over such high terrain. And with safety factors built in on the remote chance that we do have an engine failure during the most critical point of this high terrain crossing. And this calculation is performed for regions of high terrain
0: around our wee planet, such as the Andes and Europe and that, et cetera. So we've discussed the takeoff performance, uh, we've discussed the cruise performance, and now uh, we're going to discuss the landing performance. Most of the conditions we discussed in the takeoff performance part. earlier also have an effect on landing, including the way uh, we use factors as safety margin in these calculations. Did you want to sort of expand on that? Yeah, that's
1: correct. Of course, towards the end of the flight, we're lighter because we've burnt off all that fuel. But landing on, say, a short runway with contamination on it, such as water or snow or ice, it has a significant impact upon how an aircraft decelerates. Even landing on a long runway, we don't need to hit the brakes really hard, as it does mean more brake wear, and it's also uncomfortable for you, the passenger. So it's important for all landings that we calculate our landing performance to get off the runway at a
0: certain point. So in addition to the runway surface, any contamination on it, the wind, slope of the runway, air density, altitude, and flap setting all have a say in the stopping distance. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. And our performance figures are predicated on crossing the threshold of the runway, Uh, that's the start of the runway, at 50 feet and reducing our rate of descent, thereafter flying the wheels onto the runway. There is no requirement to make a smooth touchdown, as this can generally use more runway as we float along it trying to grease the main wheels on. We want the wheels on the runway and the wing spoilers extended to get as much weight on those wheels so the brakes can do their job without skidding.
0: So many accidents have occurred on landing due to the overrunning of the runway. Why is this and um, what has been done like since these accidents to uh, overcome this?
1: Yeah, this has generally come about due to the aircraft being unstable as it approaches the runway. Unstable meaning it might be going too fast, it might be too high or even too low. So the aviation industry has reduced these landing overruns significantly in the last 10 or so years by focusing on stabilization requirements in order to complete the approach and land it. In essence, we have a gate which we must meet certain criteria. And the gate for the majority of airlines is about 1,000 feet on the approach. So that's just over three miles away from the runway. And the requirements that the aircraft must be on the glide path, the landing flaps set, the landing gear down, the landing checklist complete, the power is correct for the speed, the pitch attitude is correct, and the airspeed is within a target range of the target up to 10 knots. Should these parameters not be met at the 1,000-foot gate or any of these parameters change thereafter, a go-around is mandatory. This has significantly
0: reduced landing incidents and accidents worldwide. Going around uh, is obviously better than having a little crash at the end of the runway. So, Yeah, they can always go around and have another go at it. Moving on again from a landing performance, the last topic uh, we're going to discuss here is the weight and balance. So you mentioned all aircraft have a maximum weight limit and that's worked out during the design phase of the aircraft. What else is there on that weight and balance?
1: Yeah, that's right. There's a whole lot of limitations and these are the aircraft-like structural limitations. So on a large jet, we have a Maximum taxi weight, a maximum takeoff weight, a maximum zero fuel weight, and a maximum landing weight. And they're all structural limitations from the aircraft manufacturer, and we are not allowed to exceed them. Bear in mind, the maximum takeoff weight is a structural limit. However, on a short or contaminated runway, due to the V1 requirements we talked about, our maximum takeoff mass limit might actually be a lot lighter. And we call this the Regulated Performance Limited Takeoff Mass. Uh, It doesn't mean to say every runway we can take off at at, a maximum weight. And we've discussed the reason why with regard to the V1 criteria. Uh, The same goes for maximum landing mass with regard to landing on a short or contaminated runway. Another interesting weight limit I've mentioned here is the maximum zero fuel mass. This is the maximum weight of an aircraft that it can be with no fuel. So that's the empty weight of the aircraft with the crew, passengers, and cargo in it. Passengers and cargo being termed payload. Anything above the zero fuel weight must be fuel only. And the primary reason for this is to do with wing bending. You see, with all the payload in the fuselage towards the end of the flight, as the fuel tanks in the wing deplete, the wings would bend up a lot. And the manufacturer has put a limit on this bending by limiting the amount of weight in the fuselage and therefore keeping the bending within the manufacturer's limit. Now, 777 is a good example. Once again, we've got three large fuel tanks. We have the left and right tanks, which are literally the whole wing filled with fuel. And each wing can carry 31,300 kilograms or 69,000 pounds of fuel. However, under the fuselage and in between the wing, is our centre fuel tank, which holds 82,900 kilograms, or just under 183,000 pounds of fuel. Now, this fuel in the centre tank actually contributes to the zero fuel weight. So before any fuel goes into the centre tank, the wing tanks must be full first. And we will use the centre fuel first in flight, and we'll burn all that off, and then we'll start
0: using the wing tanks. Just using this method keeps the wing bending loads well within their design limits, which are uh, are quite large as we've discussed in previous episodes. They can yeah. bend quite far. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, finally, the balance of an aircraft. You'll notice um, that most commercial aircraft have their wings attached to the fuselage around the middle of the aircraft. Be a little bit in front, maybe a little bit behind, but generally in the middle. And if you were it like a huge person, and you picked the aircraft up from the wingtips, the fuselage would pretty much stay level. If you look at an aircraft with the engines are mounted at the tail, you'll also see that the wings are further back from the aircraft. But the same principle applies here, whereby if the giant lifted up the wings of the aircraft, even though they look further back, that is still the center of gravity, and thus the fuselage would still stay pretty much level.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's all about the balance of the aircraft. And when we say the fuselage is level, we could say the center of gravity is right in the middle of the mass of the aircraft, which is generally around where the wings are attached to the aircraft. Now, as we load the aircraft, if there's too much weight in the front, when our giant lifted the wingtips, the nose of the aircraft would be pointing down. Uh, The more weight forward, then the more it would point down. And the same goes if you put uh, too much weight in the rear of the aircraft, but this time the nose will be pointing up. Now the horizontal stabiliser at the back of the aeroplane, it can balance this out along with the help of the elevators. However, it can only do so much, and thus there are limits set by the manufacturer and loading of the aircraft that we can't exceed. And these limits are called centre of gravity limits. And once you exceed these limits, There is no guarantee by the manufacturer that the horizontal stabilizer and elevators can control the pitch of the aircraft. So these forward and aft limits must be strictly adhered to. Lastly, we have uh, limitations such as maximum speeds we can fly, maximum speeds for gear extension, for flap extension, limits on when the weather radar can be used, and
0: various other aircraft limitations that must be adhered to. So there we have it. Takeoff and route and landing performance. Stabilised landing criteria along with weight and balance limitations. They're all laid out by the manufacturer and regulatory bodies to be adhered to by the aircraft operator and pilots, ensuring that your flight is operated in a safe and legal manner.
1: Yeah, and so we operate the aircraft within a really small window of what it's truly capable of. But these additional limits factors and conservative methods of applying such things as environmental factors they significantly increase the safety of operating aircraft in today's world of air transport. So the next episode we're going to chat about fuel and fuel policy. We're going to discuss some properties of fuel and we're going to discuss how we do our fuel calculations for a flight and what the rules are to ensure that we'll always have enough fuel even if something unforeseen develops, which means we can't land at our destination. So from me,
0: thank you very much to your ears for listening. And from James. And from me, don't uh, hesitate to get in contact with us through any of our social media links, which I'm pretty sure are linked in the description. And yeah, have a good day.